You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball. I'm joined by our special guest today, Andrew Wagner. So firstly, before we jump into the interview, nothing me or Andrew says is financial advice. And thank you very much for coming on the show, Andrew. Oh, oh, I'm so delighted to be here. We may as well start with the book. So you wrote The Economics of Online Gaming, A Player's Introduction to Economic Thinking. So could you firstly just talk us through how you came to write the book and then just talk us through your progression in Eternal Lands, which is obviously the game that you're playing that's summarized in the book. I'm one of the few people, I think, who was actually a, a reluctant author. This is not a book that I initially wanted to write. Uh, the whole idea came about when I was a, a sophomore in college, and I was at a Christmas party where I was telling my classmates why I chose to study economics and why I was good at economics and how I understood it. And they told me that I should write it down, which I thought was crazy because all of the data that I had gathered, I had deleted a month earlier. So I didn't think this had any value at all, but, but they insisted that I do it. So I, I went ahead and started trying to kind of recreate the story that I had told them, rewrite some of the data, find it, recover things, and then after I was done, I thought, okay, I have this interesting story about how I discovered that economics was interesting and, and how I learned how to do it. What am I going to do with this thing? So I found a professor who, who didn't know me at all because I wanted to get an honest opinion. And I went into his office and I said, I've been working on a paper and I just, I just need some help knowing if the economics is right, knowing if this is something I, sh I should pursue. And he said, oh yeah, sure, I can, I can help you, that's, that's fine. And I opened my bag <laughs> and I gave him a, a notebook that was like half an inch thick. And he said, this is insane. He said, this is, this is not something that an undergrad should be working on. This is a master's thesis. What, what are you doing? Uh, but he actually agreed to read it. And when he gave it back to me, he said, never make anyone read this whole thing ever again. So I, I don't know if that means <laughs> it was good or not, but he told me the economics was right and that I should use one chapter of it as some kind of economics paper. But the rest of it was pretty boring, at least in his opinion. So I took one chapter and I used that as my senior thesis in economics. And that actually led to a presentation for the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank at a conference where it was so well received that when I got back home, the university said, if you want to go to grad school, we'll pay for it. So the story that I thought had no value, that I didn't think was that interesting, actually turned out to be pretty valuable. And then I just kept working on it over the next 10 years or so until I finally found a publisher that would help me get this thing finished. So that's kind of the story about how the book began why I was working on it. And, and one of the main things that I realized as I was working on this project is a, a lot of people find economics to be intimidating or really difficult or too much numbers-based. So one of my goals was to make it more story-based, more like something that people who read fantasy novels would be comfortable with. And, and I, I'm not sure of, of your assessment, but I, I, I hope I achieved that goal at least. 
no, no, it was, it was a really, really easy read. I enjoyed it. I mean, I've, I've read a few economics books anyway, but I did an accounting and finance degree. So we had some of the actual economics books on the course and I would definitely have preferred yours because <laughs> with the ones we had, I always, you just, I read the bits that I needed to read and then I didn't want to read the rest and I didn't. Whereas with yours, I, I, I think if I'd had that at university, I probably would have actually read it cover to cover, which I didn't do with any of my other books, if I'm being honest. Well, that's good. I hope if there are any professors uh, listening to this podcast, they they uh, take that feedback and use my book in their class. Oh, right. And and the second part of your question, what, what's what's the progression of of the story? Right. That's that's what you want to know next. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want to spoil the entire thing, but I can give you a few kind of big picture stories of what happened and and some some of the stuff that didn't actually make it into the book that I wanted to put in, but just didn't have space. So it's a story of my experience inside a, an online game called Eternal Lands, which kind of a medieval fantasy themed online game where players walk around with weapons and armors. They fight monsters and Sometimes they fight animals like rabbits and stuff like that. And I would be surprised if anyone has heard of this game because only about 3,000 people played it. But if you've ever heard of RuneScape or if you've ever played RuneScape, this game was very similar to RuneScape. So if you're, if you're imagining something, just imagine that. And it, basically what I did was I started a company inside the game, but in the game they're called guilds. Some of them function like businesses, some of them functioned like warrior colonies, and some of them functioned just more like social groups. But the one I started was more like a business and I founded it with my brother and we had the most non-fantasy name you could think of, which was Rich. And after some kind of scandal, which you'll have to read the book to find out what happened, I ended up betraying my brother basically kicked him out and took over control. And, and part of that scandal meant that we ended up with a terrible reputation. So we have a terrible reputation and we're, we're functioning as a business. And as I was thinking about it, I realized that there, there weren't any guilds playing the game in the position of being the villain. So I thought it would be interesting to leverage this bad reputation and play the game in a way that other people don't quite have the freedom to, to play because if they're all trying to be good players, they're limited in how much they can experiment with different things. So I, I wanted to see what I could do with it. And I, I wanted to turn the guild into some kind of economic powerhouse. So I really have kind of three big picture stories that I guess that cover the progression that I have. So the first one I, is what I would call kind of the startup phase. And this was before Rich achieved any kind of special economic power to be able to push people around in, in the market. And maybe I should explain the market just a little bit. Just to summarize really quickly, there was the manufacturing market, which was building weapons and armor that players would wear and then they would use that weapon and armor to attack monsters. So there was a market and you had the sellers of weapons and armor and then the buyers. And some groups of manufacturers thought that the prices were too low and they weren't making enough money. So they decided to do what they called going on strike. But, but really the economic term for this was they were forming a cartel. So they were forming a cartel so that they could fix the prices and make more money. And I joined the cartel with the intention of betraying all of these other players. And the fascinating thing is that their idea actually worked. The, the players pulled themselves out of the market. The prices went up. And then I betrayed them and I started selling at the higher prices. And as soon as I did that, the prices started going back down to the normal level and me and my guild rich 
captured all of the benefit from what these players were trying to do. So that was like really where Rich established the reputation that I was going for with, you can't trust us in the market. We're going to do things our own way. We're going to do everything we can just to make money and we don't care who gets hurt by it. And a story that didn't make it into the book, and I, I wish I could have included it because it, it really is part of the story, is the response that the players had. The leader of this cartel was so angry that he hunted me down and he attacked my player inside the game. And when you die in the game, you get sent to a place called the Underworld. He had his character commit suicide so that he could keep attacking me in the underworld and, and just keep attacking me over and over. So that kind of response is something that if you're playing as the villain, you see as a success, because if the point is to disrupt the other player's normal way of playing, then, then absolutely, that was, that was the perfect way to do it. And I wish I could have included that in the book, but I ran out of space. Yeah, I would have liked that. Maybe, maybe the second edition. <laughs> no, I, I actually think there is room for it to be because I know, like you, you say at the, I know we're like uh, going off on a bit of a tangent now, but like, yeah, because you, you say it in the intro, like basically how the book came about a bit. You say you initially had this long thing that you then condensed for your thesis or whatever it was, and then like it's it got expanded slightly for publishing. I don't know. I I felt like it could have been longer actually. It wasn't. Because it was only like, what is it, like 130, 140 pages. It's not a massive read. I think I think for the second edition, I think there is room for it. Well, the publisher gave me a page limit, and I went over the page limit that they gave me, and they they were okay with that. <laughs> but that was as much as I could do. You're not allowed to just cheat and use a smaller font or something. I don't think so. We'll, we'll see. If, if I sell a lot of books, maybe they'll give me more freedom. Well, I'll hope for it in the second edition. Because... <laughs> There, there were a few other stories like that where players in the market were so upset that they were physically attacking rich players, basically like raiding parties. And I had to leave all of that out of the book, but you get to hear it in your podcast. It said in the book, there's like areas where you can attack other players and areas where you can't. I don't know how it really works in terms of, could you just avoid those areas or were there times when you had to travel through those areas so there was just no way of avoiding it? There, there were a few times where you had to travel through those areas. And, and I guess to add a little context to this, this particular player attacking me is that one of the punishments in the game was they could punish you in a way where you could be attacked anywhere in the game. And I had done something that the game moderators didn't like so they made it so i could be attacked anywhere in the game and there there was i guess quite a hunt actually i i hid in the mountains in a cave and these players tracked me down chased me out of it it was it was quite a story so how did it like not get to a point where it was unplayable uh well fortunately the punishment has a time limit <laughs> right <laughs> and uh, and i still don't think i did anything wrong so that's that's my story and i'm sticking to it it's also maybe sometimes the the animosity was not just if i broke a small rule but because of my role playing the villain and the market actions made so many people angry that an, a little bit extra punishment no no one was gonna stand up for me and say that was too too far they they wanted to to be part of it and you talk about your role in the game right Could you summarize yeah because it's a, i don't think it's really come across the amount of influence you actually had inside it and like for example like if you used to go and play runescape or any other game like it today I don't think it would be possible without actually being the developer and giving yourself extra like, abilities to get to the level of influence that you actually had on the game. Yeah, and actually, that, that's, uh, those are the, the other two stories I wanted to All tell. Right. The, first, the first one was just, this is, this is how I established the reputation that, that we had. 
so the second one was I, I looked at the game through an economic perspective. And what I discovered is that when people were producing, they were trying to do everything individually by themselves. And what I realized was that if I had a large group of players all producing at the same time, using an economies of scale kind of concept, we could produce things cheaper than everybody else. So I basically got the largest group of players that I could, produced tons and tons of stuff with costs that were significantly lower than everybody else, and then just flooded the market in a way that no one else could compete with, and, and basically wiped out all of the competitors and made Rich into a monopoly. And in a game like RuneScape, that's actually not really possible to do because RuneScape has millions of players. But this game only had 3,000 players. So if I have a guild of two or 300 players, that's a pretty significant chunk of the player base. And if they're producing more than everybody else and they're doing it cheaper than everybody else, then that's, that's really tough to compete against if you're trying to do this as an individual producer. So, so you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's probably not possible in RuneScape, but RuneScape is much larger. And then once, once you've achieved that kind of economic power, it kind of becomes political power too, which is, which is the, the third main story I would tell about the game at this point. Because when you have a monopoly, you start having the ability to influence other things in the market, like how this market is regulated or how it's, in the case of a game, developed. So to spoil the story a little bit, Rich managed to get a former Rich member to join the development team. And as part of joining the development team, he was required to promise that he wasn't going to help any guild more than any other guild. But he broke that promise and he used his influence to help Rich become even more powerful, which is, in my opinion, one of the purest cases of regulatory capture that, that I've ever seen. I mean, that was one of the bits I was going to ask about anyway, because that the bit the bit you're referring to, which I won't spoil it for anyone that's yeah. listening, that for me was probably the funniest bit. <laughs> it's not like meant to be humorous, but it, it, I did find it funny. That was probably the best bit for me. Could you talk about as well? Because obviously, you've, I think it's hard to get across without reading the book, just how much influence you had. I mean, one of the things you do in the book is you actually publish tables showing the prices of all the goods in the game before and after your guild. And... They, they have virtually everything has just crashed as a result. And like you say, you had a lot of unhappy players as well. Could you talk about as well what happened? Because you stopped playing and then got back into it. And it was, you like you could even even when you got back into it, you couldn't recreate what you actually had originally once that initial, I guess, initial monopoly had been broken. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Basically, what happened is the innovation that I had come up with, essentially economies of scale, as a, to, as a summary of, of what I did, other players copied it. Other players started doing the same thing that I did. And a lot of them were members of the Rich Guild who started their own faction and then left and then kind of built up their own operation. So I think there were actually three or four guilds that were started by former rich members who were all doing exactly the same thing that I had been doing when I left. And when I came back, rich was not able to compete with them as well as rich had been able to compete with the other players before. And the way I look at it is basically a, a process of, of innovation where Rich had the first mover advantage. And then once everyone else figured it out and it was more of a level playing field, that advantage was gone. And, and competing just, just wasn't possible anymore, at least not in the same way, or dominating like that wasn't possible anymore. Do you still play any games now? <laughs> not, not as often. 
I I have a brother who will call me and say, do you want to play a game? And uh, if I can, I will. And I have another brother who will call me and say, my kids are asleep. I only have time to play right now. And, and I'll usually play a game with them, <laughs> but uh, not not too often. I used to play a lot when I was younger and I don't play any anymore because I just... I've just found I can't play them in moderation. <laughs> I'm better off not playing them at all. So, like you say, you, everything that happens in the book, so what you did first, just a, a, lay, a layout of the structure of the book, you go through it chapter by chapter and you, you slowly take us through the story. And then at the end of each chapter, you, you link it to an actual economic lesson that you then explain. So how many of these lessons do you actually see when you're investing? And how, does it affect how you actually think about investing and just, just the business world generally? Since it's my book, I personally think that all of it is useful, but uh, that might not actually be true. Not not all of it is directly relevant to investing, but the way that I think about business strategy is something that I pull directly from my experience playing this game and my experience writing the book. And the biggest one is the type of industry that I'm looking at. So I think about, is this a monopoly or is it a perfectly competitive market? Which type of market am I looking at? And then based on that type of market, you can evaluate the appropriate competitive strategy for the particular business that you're looking at. So for example, if you're talking about a perfectly competitive market where every product's exactly the same. The way to compete is to have a better price, but to have a better price, you have to have lower costs. So I think about things like that all the time, but I, I'm pretty sure that the biggest one is, is the type of industry and then how that company's competitive strategy fits within the industry that they're part of. So how did you become interested in investing then in investing then and could you talk us through your investing career today and how you actually made that sort of because obviously you were doing the economics degree so what did you actually end up doing afterwards yeah and actually you're you're the first podcast to ask me this question so i'm gonna i'm gonna give you the full story because no one no one actually has the full story i, I actually it was some time i think after i had stopped playing eternal lands while i was in high school or right after I graduated, I read a book called The Warren Buffett Way. And when I read that book and I did some more research on who Warren Buffett is, I, I learned that he gives a lecture every year in Omaha, Nebraska at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. And I really, really wanted to go to this. I was so into the idea of, of seeing one of these lectures that I... I bought a, a B share of Berkshire Hathaway. That was the first investment I ever made. And, and at the time, it was about $3,200, which was the same amount as my entire life savings. So I'm a freshman in college, and I put my entire life savings into one stock just to go see a lecture. And I'm from Kansas. My hometown, it's about a three, three and a half hour drive to Omaha. And I have $10 in my pocket that I saved for lunch. But parking is $10. So I get in line at five in the morning. I don't have any money. All of my life savings is in Berkshire stock. I spent all of my cash on parking. And I'm in line outside the building and it's just raining like crazy. But the guy next in line doesn't have an umbrella. So I share my umbrella with him and I start talking to this guy. I sit with him during the event. He saves my butt because he buys breakfast. He buys my lunch and he gives me his business card, uh, which I thought was crazy because no experience with that kind of thing, no money, anything. But he gives me his business card and the that I made from this person who I met at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, he introduced me to the person who gave me 
my first investment job. And that got me a great recommendation that helped me get other investment jobs. And then after I graduated from college, I basically started writing stock analysis and sending it to people until someone hired me. And that got me into the newsletter business. And from there, I moved into doing more consulting with professional money managers and professional investment firms. And then from there, I kind of moved into what I'm doing now. So what made you read the Warren Buffett way then, do you think? That, that's, a, that's a very good question. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. I think I just like to read finance and that one that I picked up. Okay. Do you go to the Berkshire meeting every year still? Or how often do you go? I, I have never missed one. I go every year. Of course, the last two have been virtual, but I virtually attended those. I've gone even when I lived 3,000 miles away and, and drove to Omaha. I still went. I've never missed one. What, what led to you starting Wagner Road Capital Management then? Well, the, the short version is that I, I realized that the professional fund managers I was working with, that I was doing consulting with, when I would send them an investment idea, would make a lot more money from investing in it than I would from getting paid to provide the idea for them. That's, that's kind of the summary of it. But on top of that, the investment managers that I work with, they would have minimum investments that are in the millions of dollars. And I kind of liked the idea of taking this research and, and trying to see if it useful for people who don't have millions of dollars. Okay. So how long were you, what's like the timeline for that? And how long were you doing it before you then sort of went out on your own? Something like three to five years. I can't remember exactly, but it took me a really long time to get my company set up and all of those other things. How long did it take you to build up a, a client base then? Probably one to two years, I think, before before I was comfortable with it and I could say, okay, this is this is going to be okay. So could you talk us about what your investment appraisal process is and how you would approach looking at a new stock or a potential investment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking at four basic things. I won't get in too much into the specifics, but it's a strong financial position, a strong competitive position, a good management team. And then as a bonus, I like to see some kind of long-term trend to reinvest in or something that the business can grow. So I can go through those four things really quickly. A strong financial position. Basically, I would like no debt or very low amount of debt, and then earns maybe above average returns. A strong competitive position. This is where I'm looking at what type of industry is this company in and where do they fit in that industry? Are they the leader? Are they going to be the leader at some point? And my favorite kind of business is one where the company operates as a monopoly, but they're not regulated like a monopoly. So, so maybe my favorite kind of business would be a rich if I ever found one. And then uh, a management team, it's basically asking the question, do I feel like this management team is going to act in the best interest of the company's stakeholders? And in, in my opinion, the best management team is one that still has a company founder who is active in the company somewhere. And then when I talk about something to reinvest in, it's either some kind of theme. I think the big ones right now are stuff like electric vehicles or plant-based meats or something like that. That's the kind of thing that I'm looking at. And then I also like regional companies that are growing into a national area. So maybe they're only in five states, but they think they could grow into 10 or 20 or a national company that's, that's going global. So they're US-based and they want to start 
growing their business in Europe or something like that. So that's, I think, a pretty good summary of the kind of things I'm looking at when I evaluate investments. How long do you think it would, I guess, take you from like start to finish, from like maybe first hearing about something before you got to a stage where you, you would actually invest in it? Oh, that's a really good question. It depends on how familiar I am with the industry before I look at the company. I would say it's it's always it's always in the months. It's the timeline is always in the months. I, I never act super quickly. I, I usually want to make sure that I really understand what's going on. And there have been times where I was interested in by the time I was comfortable with it, the the price was no longer attractive or something like that. It just happens. When you talked about the, like the things you're looking for, something that I just thought was, obviously, if, if you were to put them together as a group, US big tech seems to tick a lot of those boxes. Do you have any thoughts on them overall without getting into specific companies? I would say that you're absolutely right. US big tech does tick a lot of those boxes. <laughs> So what are the best books that you've read on the subject of investing and how much do you read in general? Well, I, I don't read as much as I used to. I I used to try to read one book every week, but it's just not possible anymore. Uh, I probably read one book a month. But uh, books on the subject of investing, personally, I think everyone should read my book. But of course, I would say that. You're allowed to say uh, that. <laughs> I won't edit that out. <laughs> I would recommend The Warren Buffett Way by Robert Hagstrom, which was the first one I read that got me interested in it. And then I would read The Warren Buffett Portfolio, which is also by Robert Hagstrom. And then uh, one of the books that I think is meant in The Warren Buffett Way is uh, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits by Phil Fisher, which was one of Warren Buffett's influences. And then One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, which is a very popular book that I think a lot of people have heard of. And then I think adding a little bit of psychology into the investment process, The Little Book of Behavioral Investing is is probably the fifth one that I would recommend reading for, for people who are kind of new to investing or even not new to investing. These are really good books. So I've not read the Warren Buffett way. I've read the Warren Buffett because it, it does get recommended a lot. I've read the Warren Buffett portfolio and I think I bought that by accident thinking it was a Warren Buffett way. I didn't realize he'd done a sequel. So I've read that one first. I've not read the little book behavioral investing either actually. Um, so I'll pop them both on my list. When you're not reading investing, what else do you read just out of interest? A lot. <laughs> I I like history books. I'm a big fan of history books. So I'm I'm constantly reading history books, sometimes psychology books. I like biographies. And I, I suppose if it helps, I could also send out the list of books that I've read because I, I rate all of them on a one to five scale. And yeah. Any, anybody who asks for my reading list, I just send that to them and uh, then they can pick which books I, in different, different categories. I actually read a lot of history and biographies myself. So I definitely want it if, for myself, if for nothing else. Have you read much about the Gilded Age? I've, I've read a few biographies from that time period. Yes. Yeah. It's, no, it's, that was like, I think it was maybe a lockdown project. I tried to read projects. I tried to read like all the big Gilded Age, all the robber barons. I tried to read their big, all the big biographies about them. Um, it's like the Chernow Rockefeller book, for example. Anyway. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's a good one. I highly recommend that one. Have you read I, his JP Morgan book? I have not read that one yet. It's very, very good. But to be honest, I, I, so I read that one and I read the JP Morgan one. Oh, and I read his Grant one as well. And then after that, I just came, to, I sort of came to the realization that I'm probably going to read everything Ron Chernow's written because they're all fantastic books, actually. I, I would second that opinion. I would definitely do that. Have you read any of his other ones? I'd have to look at my list of books. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm um, sure I have. <laughs> I just think it's interesting as well because 
I mean, it's, it's the same when I interviewed Adam Mead last year, who's a mutual connection. I mean, he he was a big reader and he wasn't just reading investing books, but he, he reads a lot of different. So he was, you know, when I asked him that, he was asked, he was talking about philosophy books and biology books and stuff like that. And it's interesting how it all this sort of it all ties together anyway, especially if you listen to someone like Charlie Munger. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Charlie Munger. And, and I can even give you kind of an example of, of some of the things that I find interesting that I pull from different types of books. It was a concept, a concept that I thought was just really, I don't know if it's valuable, but it stuck with me. And it's the idea of when you turn on a faucet and the water's running and it looks clear, stable, if you are, that all breaks up and it becomes like fizzy coming out of the faucet. So there's a point where you're pushing too hard. And this this was a, a concept they were trying to talk about in biology. Things like that stick out. And when that might be useful, I'll remember it because I read it in a book that was not about business. Yeah, it is interesting because uh, after the after the Adam interview last year, I, I tried to read a few more biology books just because there's so much tie-in between investing and biology of, of like the non-investing subjects, possibly besides psychology. I think biology is probably maybe history as well, actually, but biology has probably got the most tie-in just because if you look at like the process of business, it is very much about creative destruction and it is it's very much very darwinian really when you look at how businesses operate in a capitalist system yeah and i can send you my reading list and and you can share it with your listeners if you'd like and and uh i'd be happy to chat about any of the books that are that i've read yeah that would be great actually so what are the best resources that you use for investing and your research and these can be free these can be free or paid resources i i don't use a lot of different resources it's usually reading the annual reports to get an idea of what the business is and then i like to read the conference calls to get an idea of how the management is thinking about their competitive position and there's really not that much more than that sometimes i'll read analyst reports somewhere but not that often and I like to use uh, Morningstar as a as a personal portfolio tracking system, but for for the best resources, I I think reading the annual reports and then reading the transcripts from the conference calls, you'll you'll get most of the infor- information that you need. And I guess a little bit on top of that, one of the things I like to do is do some background research on the industry, maybe read a couple history books to get myself familiar with where where are they coming from, what's what's the internal knowledge in this industry. And if I can, sometimes I'll talk to uh, the customers because the customers will tell you who they think is the best and they will rave about that. Or they'll say, this product is terrible, but I can't switch, which is another signal, oh, this might be a good business, even though it's a terrible product. How has that changed then, just out of interest? So I presume when you first started, you weren't, maybe you were, but most people when they start, they don't, don't go straight into the annual reports. That's something really that develops over time, I think, with a lot of people. Well, I think my experience was a little bit different because i read the warren buffett way first so i thought i had to read the annual reports and there was no useful information anywhere else and i've i've since learned that that's not quite true the annual reports do have some good information but you you can get a lot more from talking to people in the industry and and the conference calls, which is something that's not always very popular for, from people who like to read annual reports. But I actually started only reading annual reports. So maybe my experience was a little backwards. I think it's interesting how like where people start. 
has such a massive influence because if you start for example like if you start with any book that's about warren buffett you're probably going to be okay but you could so easily start with a book that's just well you could start with anything and there's some sources where if you start with them they're actually probably not that good or that helpful um so i think there's a lot of luck there really i i would agree with that i i think i was very lucky and i would add maybe people should start with my book just just to be smug yeah it is a good book for beginners actually i actually think i actually would say with your book because you've got the interesting story element i think because a lot because because i'd done quite a lot of economics before anyway a lot of the the sort of summaries in the at the end i'd already i was I, i think i was probably familiar with all of them but even as someone that was a lot more i guess aware of those things it was still a good read just because you were telling a story whereas like i think with a lot of economics books you don't you, you only need to read so many economics books, really. So I would actually recommend yours for anyone that's interested in economics, wherever they actually are along that journey. Who do you look up to as an investor? Well, obviously, everybody wants to be Warren Buffett. I think that, not not even just because he's good at investing, but because he's rich and famous. But he's not actually my favorite investor. I really like Charlie Munger's approach, which is more broad-based and pulls in different ideas from different subjects. But in terms of an investment style, I actually admire Bill Ackman's investment style. And I think having the opportunity to influence management is uh, something that I wish I could do sometimes. So I, I kind of admire some of the things that he does when he calls out a management team for not doing a very good job. Anyone else besides Bill Ackman then? There aren't really too many that I follow. I mean, I read Howard Marks's memos. So I would say, yeah, I look up to him as well. But but in terms of investment style, it was more more Bill Ackman's style. But I, I obviously read some of the others as well. How would you describe Bill Ackman's style then for anyone that's not familiar with him? I know you've talked about like calling out management. Is that the main well, thing then he's he is too aggressive for my comfort but i i like the way that he really pays attention to having a good management team and and that's a really big focus of of his investment style how have you evolved as an investor that is a really good question my experience starting with warren buffett the book about warren buffett was that i always wanted to invest in companies that have fortress balance sheet strong competitive position, good management. So I've always been interested in doing that. But the the downside of starting with uh, a book about Warren Buffett is that you kind of always feel like you should be looking at things that are cheap all the time. So when I first started investing, I thought you had to invest only in small companies to get incredible returns, or you had to only invest in low price per earning stock to have safe returns. And over time, I've become more conscious of the impact of things like industry development cycles or growth of an industry or big picture macro trends. And I've been willing to pay a little bit more where I used to think everything has to be cheap And I think the other influence is that my investment career kind of started right before the great financial crisis. So as I started looking at companies, suddenly they all got really cheap. And I had to shake that off a little bit because I realized those are prices I'll never see again. So I think the the evolution was more, okay, there's some value in growth companies. That's it's it's interesting because that's I mean it's always a different variation because everyone's got their own stories but it's that's like probably the most like the most common answer to that question is some variation of I looked at stuff that was really really cheap at the start and then realized afterwards that quality is quite important as well and it's not just about that so do you look at companies in markets other than the US I I do but I I don't do it for 
my own portfolio or any of the people who have invested with me. I actually do it for the clients that I have when they ask me to. I have found that I am much more comfortable looking at companies inside the U.S. than looking at international companies. And I've found that, and, and maybe this is only because it's what I found, is the companies inside the U.S. seem to be a little bit better. And that, that could just be my home country bias. I, I'd agree. You have, on average, you have better companies probably. And if you were to compare, if you go to, to go down name by name, if you were to go down the S&P 500 and compare it to say the FTSE 350 in the UK, I think the average S&P 500 company would probably... I think objectively people would say it was probably better. So have you ever specifically looked at any companies in the gaming sector and what are your thoughts on the economics of these? So I I actually love this question uh, because I wrote a three-part report on the video game industry that's actually up on my company's website. So I've, I've looked at lots of gaming companies and can give you kind of a summary on the industry if, if you like yes. to get into it. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> so part, part of what I wrote was to give people kind of the background history of, of the industry. And the way I like to summarize it is it started back in the 70s with people going into arcades and playing games at arcades. And then sitting in front of your TV, playing games at home in front of your TV. And then in the 90s, it became sitting in front of your computer, playing games on your computer. And then in the early 2000s, it was sitting in front of your computer, playing games on the internet. And now it's sitting in front of your phone, playing games on your phone. And that's the progression of the industry. over the past 50 years. So how does that relate then to the businesses? Because I, I guess as well, like when you put it like that, there's, so, there's a, a lot of different businesses actually, even within the gaming sector. Yeah, there are. And the, the lessons behind that progression is every time you switch to a new, I guess, type of gaming, there's tons of companies trying to get into the same thing. And how do you pick the winner? You, you can't really. But after a while, the industry consolidates and it becomes just maybe two or three winners. And if you're talking about a company that makes consoles, so like Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo Switch, if they've got the best games, they'll get the most gamers. So what matters for them is the game library. Best games, most the trouble with trying to invest in a console producer is that you've got Sony and Microsoft where gaming is not a very big part of their business. So the only kind of pure play for console would be Nintendo, but for the others, it's just a small part of their business. And on the other side, you've got the game producers like game studios, game publishers, and what I like to see in, in a game studio or a game publisher is one that has several different franchises where they can release another game that's under the same kind of name. I think the most famous one is Call of Duty. It's a new game every year, Call of Duty, really stable, really steady. But the thing that has changed over the past 10 or 20 years is that the top gaming companies get something like 50 to 70% of their revenue from selling stuff inside the games. So the big money in this industry is not selling. It's selling stuff to people who are already playing the game. And that's a really good business if you've got good games. And then you have the kind of big trends in the industry are mobile games and then trying to reach into the Asian markets 
And then one that's really relevant right now is the consolidation industry. We've got buyouts happening, like Microsoft is buying Activision Blizzard. And that's just a trend that's been going on also, well, actually for decades in this industry. Usually it's a game company that makes one game and then their game is successful, but they don't have the resources to make another and they're bought by a bigger company. But what Microsoft is doing is they're building a game library, like I described with console producers. That's where the strength is in the Xbox console. So I hope that answers like your questions on the, the way I'm looking at that industry, but I'm, I'm not invested in it right now. So what would you, would you have any thoughts on, for example, the biz, on the bit, just the general business model of saying Activision Blizzard? I appreciate you can't really invest in that. I know you, I know you could because they've not quite been bought by Microsoft yet. But prior, I guess prior to the, the Microsoft and, uh, acquisition being announced, what were your thoughts on like that business model then? Just in terms of how, how good it is for shareholders where they are just releasing a slightly different variation of the same game every year and then just charging you for stuff inside it. Well, I, I went three a few years ago and went to one of the invest, investment presentations by the Ubisoft guys. And they had, they had a chart that to make the most of their revenue from microtransactions. And I don't remember what the numbers were, but they said, look at Activision Blizzard. They're the leaders in this metric. We want to be like them. We want to do what they're doing. Uh, figure out how to copy them. They're so successful. And I, I would basically agree with what they said. So when did you write this report? Like how long ago, just out of interest? Two years ago. Two years ago. I need to update it. Was that before Unity went public? And evaluation yeah, aside, what do you think of that? as a business because that's slightly different to the others isn't it where it's just providing the engine i i think that's a very good business i i think i haven't liked the stock price but but i think providing the tools that their businesses in the industry are is in general very good business so i look at it from the perspective of when people say the picks and shovels kind of model it's it's kind of a cliche, but if you're if you want to make money in the the gold rush, you you sell them the blue jeans and you sell them the picks and shovels that they use to try and mine the gold. That's the way I look at the the unity type of business. Do you have any thoughts on? Because it just made me think of this one. Do you have any thoughts on Oculus and the metaverse then, and how that fits in, if at all? That's something I'm still researching. And, and I think when I update my report on the gaming industry, I'll have to talk about it. It's, it's kind of a tricky one because the, the idea itself is actually not that new. I think the game Second Life came out in like 2003. I'm, I'm not sure the exact year. It's almost 20 years old. And that game was basically the same idea as the metaverse stuff that people are talking about now. And that one's really hard to predict. I, I'm not sure how popular that will become. I'm not sure what kind of people will decide to use it. And it's, it's something I still need to do some more research on. Looking at your own portfolio, it's extremely concentrated. How do you feel about having such a concentrated portfolio? Do you only have individual equities in it? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I generally avoid e- ETFs. The only time I look at them is if, if I'm doing some research for somebody who, who wants to invest in a kind of broad economic strategy where they're, they're interested in something that's, that's like this entire country or this entire industry that's the only time I do any research on them, but I, I, I don't include ETFs in, in my portfolio at all. But I, I will sometimes look at individual companies that are in those kind of 
themes that an ETF might be invested in for somebody else. But in terms of a concentrated portfolio, there was a book I read a long time ago. I, I can't remember what it was. I think it was by Jack Bogle. And he talks about how many investments you can have before you might as well own the entire index. And if I remember right, I think the number was 12, where if you own more than, I think a random basket of 12 stocks, then you might as well own the entire index because your performance will generally be pretty close to it. If you own less than 12 stocks, the outcome you have is more likely to be different from the market average. Difference could be better or worse, but more likely to be different. But from my perspective, it's not just about diversifying too much. It's also that it's it's really hard to follow too many companies all at the same time. And if I have one idea that I think is a really good idea, then I want to make sure it has a big impact on my portfolio. So that's the reason that I stay concentrated. And, and it's really not for everybody. And I, I know that there are investors who have been successful owning 50 stocks. It's just not something that I can do. I was just wondering what you think about like actual position sizing. Because obviously, if you're very concentrated, you know, how, how far would you let something run, I guess? So like, would you be happy with something that just it's a complete hypothetical? And I know it depends on the business, but would you be happy with something being 20% of your portfolio, for example? If, if I'm really confident that it's a good idea, then that's what I would be comfortable with. And if you think of Warren Buffett's style, there have been many periods in his history where one stock has been 50% of his portfolio. So I think it depends on how strong the business is, how strong its prospects are, and how how you evaluate it at the time. I think Buffett's quite an interesting example because obviously there's throughout, obviously in the past he was very much doing it. But even now, if you look at just like the, the, the public investments that Berkshire has, Apple's a massive chunk of them now. Yeah, I think Apple is almost half. I'm not sure. And he obviously doesn't care. Yeah, I mean, he has, he has some tax <laughs> issues if he sells it as well, I guess. Yeah. So your website says... We manage a concentrated long-only equity strategy using separately managed accounts. Our investment strategy selects a portfolio of roughly 8 to 15 high-quality equity investments that are primarily based in the U.S. This service is generally considered a small part of investors' overall portfolio with a recommended minimum investment of $20,000. Could you briefly talk about the thinking behind this? The main idea is that the investment strategy I use is not intended to be an investor's entire portfolio. So for their investments, they might have some other area where they're invested in bonds, invested in some ETFs or something else. And my investment service is just intended to be part of their overall picture. So it, it frees them up to not be that concentrated if they don't want because this portfolio is concentrated, but maybe their overall investment is not not as concentrated. And then they can be invested in different strategies if that's right for them. And then it's also, it doesn't take millions of dollars to to be invested in this strategy. So do you, when you actually, just have interest when you're actually doing that, will you, will you look at what else the client has elsewhere as part of your consideration? Or is that just, they come to you and say, this, this is what I want or here's my money. There you go. Or does it vary from client to client? It varies, but I, I generally tell them that I will do everything independently from all of their other stuff. And it's their decision, how much they want to be invested. And, and usually they'll have another investment advisor who is, helping them decide how much they want in each strategy. And I'm just managing this portfolio of equity investments. Well, that's the end of the question list. So firstly, thank you very much for coming on the show. If there's anything that you'd like to talk about, then now's your chance. And if not, then where can people go to find out more about you? Uh, no, I just, uh, 
I know I keep saying it, but I want people to read my book. I, I, <laughs> I generally, I don't use Twitter. The way to find me is basically add me on LinkedIn, tell me how you found me, and I will anybody. So somewhat generous with my time. And if you're interested in my reading list, I'll send that to is there a reason just so interested that you haven't joined Twitter? Because it's quite good for building like a little investing community. I yeah, that's a good question. I've never been very interested in writing short comments. So the the type of communication that I like to do is pages long, and and Twitter just doesn't work that well. For it definitely that. doesn't. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. And thank you, everyone, for listening. So we'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.